0: I think I've already come clean, but I want to come really clean. Here's everything I know about today's song as it relates to the plot of Frozen 2. Are you ready? Characters sing a hopeful song toward the beginning of the movie. Some things never change. And then everything that they have sung about changes. That's all I know. I don't know if you're up to speed on the movie, but you are at least on the same page as me. They're going into autumn, at least that's what the little clip of the movie looked like, a season of change, but there are still some things they can count on. The future they acknowledge is unknown, and time moves fast, that's true, but some things never change, and the things they name are good things, relationship and presence with each other, friendship, love, a homeland with abundance for all people, good things, the right kind of things to treasure, maybe even the godly kind of things to treasure, not the kind of things that rust and moth consume, not the kind of things that thieves can steal. Even though they're just animated characters in a kid's movie that some of us have not seen, they're onto something. They don't need a sermon from Matthew 6. They don't need it any more than you do. This little compact unit from the Sermon on the Mount reminding hearers that while stuff can get destroyed or stolen or eventually decay, some things never change, and those are the things we should treasure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you treasure the stuff vulnerable to destruction and theft and decay, your heart is vulnerable, because there's no foolproof storage anywhere on earth for those things. The bad news of this sermon and in the world is that treasuring the good things, the godly things, the kind of things that we tend to think about in relation to where our hearts should be also? That doesn't protect our hearts either. Friendships end, circumstances change, meaningful work is lost, people we love die, and we know that. None of it comes as a surprise, exactly, that there is no foolproof storage for our hearts. The Saturday before Thanksgiving, I woke up to find that she had called at six in the morning. We'd met on a seminarian's trip a year or so before, and we clicked immediately. In and amidst the weird group dynamics and the off-putting denominational politics of a trip to Venezuela, she was someone I recognized as my people, like almost at first sight. She's funny, and irreverent, and smart, and compassionate, and deeply serious when the situation called for it, and again, funny at every other moment. She told careful stories of her life at home. Of the children's theater she had run with a friend, of the bookstore that she and the friend now owned together. We cared about the same kinds of good things, kids making art, reading, curiosity, books, education, her friend. Her friend, who was also a funny woman, so creative, her friend, she kept saying when we first met, that I wondered how to signal to her that I understood. Her friend was her partner, her wife maybe. I mean, I I wondered about it for maybe a day because these trips are like going to summer camp. You know, you make friends really fast, incredibly fast friendships formed. And probably within the first 24 hours, we were laughing about all of that, her reticence and my wondering, how was I supposed to know, she laughed. It's a church trip. You could be terrible. (laughs) We became fast friends and we stayed close when we went back to our old seminaries. Close enough so that a year or so later, I was going to celebrate Thanksgiving with her and her partner, finally meet her partner. I was excited to have plans and to be with my own people. And then I woke up on Saturday before Thanksgiving to see that she had called at 6. And I called back right away, my heart pounding, because even though I didn't know really either of them, didn't know her partner, didn't know their lives, what I did know is that there is no foolproof storage for our hearts. I mean, I knew it in a general way, the way we all do. It's not a surprise. When she picked up, hello, I said, what happened? She died, she told me right away. She died last night. I found her. She wasn't surprised, exactly. I mean, she knew her partner, and she knew about depression, and she knew about the violence that a culture of hate can do to a person. She knew that the things, even the good things, we treasure most are vulnerable. After Thanksgiving, which I observed with my parents, they bought me a last-minute ticket. She celebrated with her parents. After the memorial service where I joined a phalanx of women seminarians around her, after she began the regular work of awful grieving, she shared the quote that's in our bulletin this morning, a haiku by Mitsuta Masahide. My barn having burned down, I can now see the moon. I think I'd already heard it before. Maybe you have too. It's on a lot of magnets or like the cover of inspirational journals, often with a little drawing or, or an image, a photo of the moon. And I have always found it to be a very bracing quote, very clean. I've lost everything, everything that rust and moth consume, that thieves can steal. And what I'm left with is this clarity of vision, beauty a reminder that the barn was never a safe place in which to put my treasure, my heart. Maybe when she shared it, she did, as many people do, out of a sense or a belief or a hope that something beautiful still remains, even in the wake of huge loss and grief, and I think that's true. And when she shared it, and since, and even now, there's a lot about it that I find beautiful and bracing and hopeful, But this week, considering Matthew and and our paths and my friends and, and of all things Frozen 2 and the prayers of the people that we pray here week in and week out, it seems clear that however beautiful the haiku is, the moon is also not the thing. We may lose even the ability to behold something, to behold anything, We may lose the ability to appreciate beauty. We may lose even more than what we had considered possible to lose. We may lose even the things we think will never change. The good things. I mean, the really good things. Which is not news to you, I know. Bad news, but not surprising news. It is, or can be, cause for fear. For me, at least. I mean... There is a fear that undergirds all of the storing up that we do. All the storing up of all kinds. The material kind of storing up. Even those of us who would never be accused of excess or conspicuous consumption, gathering up what we need, not for extra, but, you know, just for comfort, just regular living. Or the intellectual kind of storing up, protecting ourselves against arguments and dogma that can be vile and dangerous to us and the world. The the physical kind of storing up, plugging away at the gym or our nutrition, working not obsessively, you know, but but wisely for our well-being, keeping ourselves well for our own good and for the good of those we love, for the good of the world. Good stuff. Not all of it, the kind of not at all the kind of stuff that can be destroyed or can decay, and yet it is vulnerable. There is or can be a fear that undergirds an even deeper kind of storing up. The storing up we do against insecurity, uncertainty, questions about whether I'm enough, whether I'm actually lovable, if I gather enough people, if I do enough good, if I'm polite to wait staff and toll booth attendants. It'll be enough to demonstrate that I'm good that I am God's good stuff, that I am treasured by God, all of that warding off fear is also vulnerable. Even treasure of the kind that we know God loves, justice, mercy, reconciliation, restoration, grace, even that treasure feels vulnerable these days, maybe more than ever. That kind of treasure is vulnerable to forces of evil, forces of policy and legislation that we fear often rightly could do harm to us or those we love or the world. That kind of treasure, justice, mercy, reconciliation, that kind of treasure is vulnerable to despair. How long can we hold out hope? How long? I am vulnerable to fear. I fear the picture painted in the poem by a poet who has, himself, a diagnosis. I fear the picture of a world grown small shrunk to the size of a hospital room. Some of you have way more experience with that than I do. The narrator who has a heightened sense for the world's beauty. Now I can see the moon. The narrator has lost so much. His health, his autonomy, he remembers wine, and football, and constellations, and Iceland. I have, over the years, imagined the Northern Lights into that poem. He has lost all of that, and speech, and touch, and the desire to eat, I fear it. It's not a surprise, I know it's possible. We've seen it happen. But from within the poem, from within the poet, the narrator, in spite of all that, there is something stirring. Something that comes through him, that comes out of him, from God knows where, from God. Something that stands upright and causes him, allows him to smile. It's a Job poem. A poem about everything lost and the bedrock that remains. It's a you poem. A poem about fear that is real and well-founded because you know it's possible, you've seen it. A poem about the joy that remains. It's a me poem with all I fear and store up to defend against, even the good stuff, the good kind of treasure. A poem about where my heart is, nestled up dangerously, treasuring so many vulnerable things, so many vulnerable people. A poem about unshakable God who remains. There have been, from the beginning, so many things that people thought would never change. They had no reason to think they would change. The garden, abundant and lush. Their homeland, a place God prepared for them, flowing with milk and honey. The temple with its huge stones ordained by God that survived so much that had been rebuilt as if to show it was to last. The movement and teaching begun by Jesus, the Christ, the church, as it waited for his return with people sharing all they had in common and no one among them needing anything. Driven from the garden, exiled from home, the temple destroyed, Jesus dead, the church infighting, and then allied with power and government and corruption. Some things may never change, but which things are they again? There have been other things that people thought would never change. Circumstances so dire that change was inconceivable. Systems that oppressed some so thoroughly and benefited others so deeply that change seemed impossible. Slavery in the Bible, slavery in the U.S. Circumstances, Circumstances in which storing up hope was to tempt despair. How long can we hold out? But as it turns out, there is something in the world, in each of us, that can stir and then tunnel up. Tunnel through grief and pain and loss, injustice, outrage, slavery, oppression, addiction. Something that tunnels up and gazes out a sign of what does not change, what actually does not change. The bedrock of God and God's love, which is contingent on Exactly nothing. No circumstance, no burned down barn, no terrible early morning phone call, no life shrunk to a hospital room, no loss that, yes, sure we knew was possible but didn't see coming, nothing that can destroy or decay God's love for you or for the world or for what is actually possible. God knows, God knows what is possible and what can change. To treasure even what will change, even the best, most godly treasure, is not safe. It's not certain, but, but to love as deeply as we can is to, to wade in from deep water and feel suddenly that there is ground under our feet, or to stick to our movie, to run through the woods, tree after tree, each looking the same, and to see that there is a path after all. It is a path that proceeds from God that leads to God, a path that is actually full of fellow travelers, some of whom, some of whom look exactly like the people in this room, like you. This place will change. It has changed. It will disappoint you in some way or another. But in the midst of it, even today, for this hour, 55 minutes or so, it is an expression of God's unchanging love. That's the vision. Let us, for the time we can, be assigned to each other of the things that never change.